0: Alright, welcome to Adult Sunday School. Come on in, grab a seat. We've got handouts in the back. I feel you, Troy. I now understand what you go through every Sunday. Okay, so last week we were blessed to hear from Word and Deed. And uh, I hope that that was helpful for everyone who was able to listen to, to Dave explain the ministry that happens through Word and Deed and, and who we've partnered with. Uh, and we, we thought that would be helpful during Missions Month in particular to kind of give a snapshot of, of someone that we support, get to interact with them. And so um, thankful uh, to have him last Sunday. Just to, to do a quick little flyover of where we're going. So this is kind of the official launch of Adult Sunday School. So we're... Going to look actually back at the uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. You may have thought, well, I thought we finished it. If you remember months ago, we we looked at the first four paragraphs of chapter 26, which was all about the church, and we said we're going to come back. And so we're coming back, and we thought as elders that it was really timely, in particular as we're we're looking at the mission of the church, uh, what God has has called the church to be about, to spend uh, this Sunday school hour looking at a few more of those paragraphs in chapter 26. And then next Lord's Day, Dr. Uh, Waldron from the seminary that we support, Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, will be teaching our adult Sunday school class, kind of a one-off. We're excited to have him and then also preaching for us. uh, And that's next Sunday. And then we will, Lord willing, finish chapter 26 in a few Lord's days. Uh, So there are several paragraphs in this particular chapter. And then where we're going to actually go from there, once we finish, complete uh, the 1689, we are going to continue in the book of Acts. So really, what we're looking at in the coming weeks is is to prepare us to get back into the book of Acts. So you may be going, man, there's a lot of start stops uh, happening. Um, we, we had looked several years ago now at the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. And uh, Andrew is gonna actually kind of give us that introduction, a reminder of where we were. And then for the remainder of this semester, We're going to look at chapters 13 through the end of the book, 28. And so hopefully what we're looking at over the next few weeks will really just be laying a a good groundwork for entering back into the book of Acts. And to begin this morning, I wanted us to hear uh, a passage from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, as we're thinking about the church. Chapter 20 of Acts, verse 28, and then I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. The Apostle Paul is, is, is speaking to the elders in Ephesus, and he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Christ has purchased a people for himself with his own blood. And so if you in this room this morning are saved by grace through faith in Christ and are a child of God, part of the bride of Christ, what an amazing grace-filled privilege that we have to be considered part of the household of faith. And so I I want us to to pray and thank the Lord for that, and then we'll dive into uh, looking at chapter 26 once again. Our Father, we are so very thankful to be able to gather as your people, to be able to open up your word, the word that you have given to us, God-breathed, inspired and sufficient for all of life and godliness. Lord, we pray that this Sunday school hour here with the adults and all of the children classes and even the foundations class, you would use as a primer uh, to prepare our hearts and minds for worship. As we gather in just a little while for corporate worship, we pray that you would use this time to, to ready us, your people. Father, we, we pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we pray that you would use this study. Uh, to help us better understand the church, that this is your plan, this was not Plan B uh, to try to figure out how to to best meet the needs of your people. You you established this plan before the foundation of the earth, and Father, I pray that we would be able to just revel in it, and we would have a a greater love for the bride of Christ, to not see participation in the local expression as optional, but vital to our walks as believers. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Um, Before we read paragraph five, so we're going to look at paragraphs five, six, and seven, and I am going to work diligently in our short amount of time together, to try to make sure we get through the bulk of the content. Before we read paragraph five, though, I want to just remind us briefly of the first four paragraphs of chapter 26. Now, I do want to ask does, does everyone still have a copy? You probably don't have it with you, but do you still have possession of a copy somewhere of the 1689? Maybe head nods? No. If you do not, there still are some copies floating around. I have one up here that I'm willing to part ways with. So if you're interested, come and grab me after class and I'll get you that. And then I'll jot your name down if you don't have one and make sure you get one. But in the first four paragraphs, there really was more of an emphasis on the universal church. So where we're going to go this morning is... Is looking at the, the local church. The first four paragraphs really emphasize the universal church. And so, just, just by way of reminder, the assembly of all Christians from all ages who will gather at the end of history, we would refer to that as the universal church. The universal church consists of all the elect of God. And if you think about it, it's invisible. Now, I want to I preface that, explain that. Uh, Dr. Waldron, who we'll hear from next Lord's Day, uh, actually said it like this. The universal church is invisible because we cannot directly see the work of the Spirit which joins a person to Christ. So it's, it's invisible in that sense. It's invisible because the church as a whole is not yet perfected. It's, it's not yet uh, finally realized. And so in that sense, it's invisible. Visible churches that we see, and we see a lot of them here in Parker County, are only imperfect and partial manifestations of the universal church. The universal church and the final organized, earthliest expression of the people of God will be when we finally see. So in a sense, you could say a lot of the Christian life is walking by faith and not by sight. And in a sense, the full expression of the universal church won't be seen until all the people of God have been brought into the household of faith. And so overarching theme of paragraphs one through four, we, we, we're looking at the universal church, but we're also, we see an emphasis That the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. That's a huge emphasis. The living head. He has been given all power for calling, the institution, and the ordering of the church. So that's a little bit of where we were in the first four paragraphs. Thankfully, as this chapter unfolds, a lot of those points those details are uh, further unpacked. So if you maybe didn't didn't hear the, 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 the class on the first four paragraphs or you haven't read through it, um, hopefully as we, we work through this and you maybe revisit those paragraphs, it'll kind of all come together as we're looking at a comprehensive view of, of the church in chapter 26. The church should be regarded as important to Christians because... It's important to Christ. So when we heard the Apostle Paul address the elders in Ephesus, he is emphasizing the importance of the bride of Christ. So much so, he's really really raising the bar. You're to watch over yourselves and everyone that's part of this flock because they have been purchased by the blood of Christ. So the stakes are high. The church should be regarded as important to Christians because it's important to Christ. Christ founded the church, he purchased it, and intimately identifies himself with it. Now, as we look at these few paragraphs this morning, the confession now is going to show us how Christ exercises that power in the originating of local churches. So, uh, we should have a mic being uh, taken around for whoever would like to volunteer to read. If we have a volunteer to read paragraph five, that would be really helpful. Uh, And just by way of reminder, the reason why we have a microphone is so that we can hear it, but also every class is recorded and posted on our website. I don't want that to scare you from participating. I just wanted you to know that you can go back and listen to anything that you might miss on a Sunday morning. So, all the hands went down. Richie! All right! Thank you, brother. In the execution of this power wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calls out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word by his spirit. Those that are given unto him by his Father that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience which he prescribes to them in his word. Those thus called, he commands to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requires of them in the world. Very good. Those who are looking at the word entrusted, that's how it was spelt. Back in the uh, 1600s, just just wanted you to know that wasn't a spell check miss. Um, thank you, Richie. I hope that as you listen to those words, you're seeing the grand uh, design by God in what we experience in a local church. Now, some churches are not uh, as faithful as as obedient but when you start to see glimpses of what we read in scripture playing out before us there is much rejoicing for the saints when you when you see what you have been studying in the word come alive in the flesh it really brings much glory and honor to God and how he designed and orchestrated and ordained the local church to be to function and this paragraph is beautiful in helping us see that it's not up to us to just think of creative ways to uh, do life together and, and gather on Sunday and make it look a certain way. But Christ as the head is leading every step of the way in helping us understand what the church is to be about, what it's to look like. And so I, I love this Paragraph because it begins firstly by showing us that the only reason why any of us are gathered like this is because Christ accomplished something. So if you look at your handout, Jesus Christ is building his church. You've got two blanks there by means of the word and by the power of the spirit. we here at Grace Covenant Church rejoice in the sovereignty of God in salvation. And what we see in this paragraph is that Jesus Christ is the one calling people to himself. And we see laid out here that it is by the word or by means of the word, by the power of the Spirit. Now in John's gospel, it is it is inundated with the realities of God's sovereign grace working in people's lives. And uh, I want us to look at John chapter 17. If you've got your Bibles open, we could go to a lot of different chapters in John. Maybe some of you are thinking, man, go to chapter 6. Go to chapter 10 when you want to talk about the the effectual call, the Father giving the elect to the son and the son redeeming his people and the spirit applying that salvation to his people. But in John chapter 17, in the the high priestly prayer, um, I want us to to see those that are given unto him by the father. So verses six through 10. Would someone like to read that? I'm happy to read it. But if we have a volunteer, Ronnie's going to look around. Okay, I'm going to read. Oh, we got Edgar. Thank you. So verses 6 through 10 will be a good place for us to be. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have, given, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Very good. Thank you. So that, that's just a sample of many texts that we could have gone to that really exemplify that it is, that it is Christ who is calling out his people. And as uh, Dennis reminded us, and we'll, we'll look at the Great Commission once again, that that authority given to us, God's people, now to go and proclaim the excellencies of Christ, the good news of the gospel, we must always remember that it is, it is the word, by means of the word, by the power of the spirit, that people are being called into the Christian faith. So that's, that's what we see first. And then secondly, number two, Jesus gives an authoritative mandate. So once those people are called, we're not left to then scratch our heads and go, well, what are we supposed to be doing? Jesus gives an authoritative mandate. And so we are memorizing this passage, but I want us to to read it again. Matthew chapter 28. We heard it last Lord's Day, um, taught upon by by Dennis. I'll read it for us, beginning in verse 16. Now to the eleven disciples. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee So those called out ones should be taught something. Very clearly, we are to be about the teaching, and Jesus gives this authoritative mandate to his people that we're not just to be called and then left to our own um, devices, but instructed. That's a critical mandate given by Jesus, an authoritative mandate Those called should be taught to observe all that he has commanded. And I just want to emphasize this. This happens primarily through the local church. And I hope we're going to be able to see that as we, we look at this. So the question you could ask is, okay, if we're to be taught, how is this to be accomplished? We look to the Apostle Paul for a great example. In the Apostle Paul's ministry, he was the personal representative of the Lord Jesus. That would be an example for us. We look at Paul, and he goes and he fulfills the Great Commission everywhere he went by forming local churches, and those churches were formed by who? By those who have been called out by Christ, the called out ones And either he or his apostolic representatives appointed, this is really important, local elders in those churches. And primarily, that appointing that he gave to Timothy or to Titus was to raise up men, appoint men to do what? To be about two things, the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. And so we see, again, this emphasis on teaching. How are we to uh, experience this authoritative mandate that Christ has given his people to obey all that he has taught them? Well, someone needs to be teaching. Someone needs to explain. Someone needs to open up God's word and expound upon it. And, and that is that equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry it's it's primarily a teaching ministry so I, I have there the central ministry of the local church then is the building up of believers and their obedience to all the commands of christ and a lot of local churches will maybe share with you some of their strengths maybe they emphasize music or fellowship or serving or evangelism and i want to just submit to you this morning that if teaching is not primary, none of those other ministries are going to be effective. Because they're going to—they're not going to be rooted and founded upon God's word if we don't know God's word. It's going to be much more, or may have much more of a tendency to be man-centered, doing what we think would be most effective, rather than God-centered, which is just rooted and founded on his word and his word alone saying this is actually sufficient for all of life and all godliness. So when we look at the local church we're not relying on our own intellect our own thoughts that may be the most strategic way to engage with culture. We're actually submitting our lives to the word of God and the only way that we can do that is if it is taught to us. So faithful teachers are the ones that actually fulfill this authoritative mandate given to us by Christ. So as we're thinking about paragraph five, there's a a note by Waldron in his exposition of the 1689. You should have that on your handout. Important note, I thought it was. The necessity of church planting as an essential, integral, integral part of fulfilling the Great Commission is also underscored by the above. All that we've looked at in that paragraph, I think that there is a huge emphasis on the necessity of church planting. It is often argued for one reason or another that the church cannot fulfill the Great Commission. In fact, only the church can fulfill the Great Commission because that commission assumes and demands the creation of local churches. So when you think about the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, I hope and pray that there won't be a disconnect with the importance of church planting. So when we prayerfully consider how we align with mission organizations, other ministries, if church planting is not on the forefront of their understanding of the fulfillment of the Great Commission, then we're going to have an issue because we actually think that it is an integral part to actually fulfilling what we read in Matthew 28. That it's not just kind of parachurch ministries that we want to support and be a part of, but we actually want to see local churches planted because we actually see that that's where what Christ has mandated us to be about happens. Sweet, sweet baby sounds back there. Okay. Okay. Another volunteer now for paragraph six, please. Ronnie's ready. All right, Larry, thank you. The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting, and evidencing in and by their profession and walking. Their obedience unto that call of Christ and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up of themselves to the Lord and one to another by the will of God and profess subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. Very good. Thank you. OK, so what I want us to see in paragraph six is this theme that Jesus is the one that defines membership of the local church. He is the one that defines who is in and who's out. I want you to hear, as I read, the the opening of of the book of Romans. Just listen. You can open up your Bible as well. But I want you to just hear um, these first few verses and see if some of it is ringing a bell from what you just heard in paragraph six. So the... The letter of Paul to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in his holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one who calls us to be saints. Called to be saints. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. That's you if you're in Christ. Saints by calling. It's not a name that we give ourselves. But the God who created the heavens and the earth has bestowed this upon his people whom he adopted into his family. So Jesus defines membership of the local church. We see in this paragraph that three blanks, discipleship, baptism, and church membership are intimately connected in a local church. Discipleship, baptism, and church membership are intimately connected in the local church. When I read paragraph six, this is what just jumps out to me. If you call yourself a believer and you are not part of a local church, there should be sirens going off because everything that we are to be about as saints by calling is a visible manifestation of our obedience. Our lives should be a visible manifestation of our submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And you cannot read through the New Testament and see any examples of a people who are seeking to obey Christ as king and wanting nothing to do with the local church. That That is... That is antithetical to what we read in the New Testament. All the epistles, all the letters, there is just, it just does not even jive with what it means to be part of the way, to be a Christian, and not be connected, associated, submitting to a local church. Why is church membership important? I would submit to you as we read through scripture in the New Testament, it's Christ's appointed means of growing his people in his likeness. So I'm going to ask for another volunteer to read Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 16. Christ's appointed means of growing his people in his likeness. This is where our sanctification Maturity in Christ happens on the ground. It happens in the context of the local church. Ryan, you're going to take it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure. so that it builds itself up in love. Hmm, very good. Thank you. Okay. There is an aspect of individual walking with the Lord and growing in Christ happening in that passage. But it's all, all of that individual sanctification and, and maturing in Christ is happening in the context of a corporate people coming together. And so, yes, there is an emphasis on an individual's growth in Christ, but it's not separated or apart from what Christ is accomplishing through his people for God's glory and our good. A couple of points here. A church body formally affirms an individual's profession of faith and baptism as credible. If you think that you can be dunked in your backyard by a friend or a neighbor and then just go on your merry way and say, I'm good with Christ, I'm a follower, and it not be, um, and it not be affirmed in the context of a local church, you're missing a vital part of the Christian life. A church body formally affirms an individual's profession of faith and baptism as credible, It promises to give oversight to that individual's discipleship. The individual formally submits his or her discipleship to the service and authority of this body and its leaders. That's that's what it means to come together in a local church as, as a member. You don't have this in your handout, but Mark Dever has written a very helpful book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and in that book, this is what he says about church membership. And I want to, as you're listening, I just want to want you to think, ask this question, is this, is this a part of my life? Church membership is our opportunity to grasp hold of each other in responsibility and love. By identifying ourselves with a particular church, we let the pastors and other member other members of that local church know that we intend to be committed in attendance, giving, prayer, and service. We allow fellow believers to have a great expectation of us in these areas, and we make it known that we are the responsibility of this local church. We assure the church of our commitment to Christ in serving with them, and we call for their commitment to serve and encourage us as well. I think that's a really helpful uh, description of church membership. Church membership is a covenant between the church and the believer in which both commit themselves, their resources, their gifts, and their service to help the group of believers as a whole steward their relationship with God paragraph 7. We're going to keep moving. Volunteer to read this paragraph for us. One more to go. You guys are doing great. McKenna, saw your hand. Thank you. To each of these church <coughs> Excuse me. To each of these churches therefore gathered according to his mind declared in his word He has given all that power and authority, which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order and worship and discipline, which he has instituted for them to observe, with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. Very good. You may be looking at your handout going, there's no way he's going to finish this in time. I am. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Jesus Christ gives the local church power and authority. You may go, well... What power and what authority? Primarily, specifically in two areas. Proper worship, the church has been given authority. Proper worship and proper discipline. So with proper worship, you've got several blanks here. And I'm going to run through them quickly. And I want to encourage you to look at the the biblical passages that support. So proper worship... Christ is the one that regulates the church's worship graciously. He does this graciously by informing us how we are to approach him. The call of the local church is to be formed and reformed according to the word. You may have heard of this phrase before, the regulative principle. This is looking at scripture and saying, God, how are we to worship you? You've got blanks there. We read God's word. We preach God's word, we pray God's word, we sing God's word, and we see God's word in the ordinances. So we read, we preach, we pray, we sing, and we see. And I would love to camp out on each of these, but we don't have time, Um. But I hope that makes sense, and I want you to go and look at the passages because I think it's a helpful little study. Secondly, proper discipline. Scripture both models and commands local churches to exercise church discipline. I want you to just think about this for a moment. When you think about church discipline, some go, either I've never seen that play out in a local church, or I don't even agree that it should be part. And I just want you to know that this has been given to the local church by Christ And it's very important. Corrective discipline is like surgery. It corrects something that's gone wrong in the body so that more serious injury doesn't result. So rebuking, admonishing, even excommunication are examples of corrective discipline. I really would like to unpack this section. It's important I can't due to time, but two very important passages, Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 20, and 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13, both give us examples of church discipline playing out. And it's, it's also instructive because we see in both passages two important things. One, the keys of the kingdom have been given to the church for this to play out. You see that in Matthew 18. And then in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Lord Jesus was present among them while they're being told by the Apostle Paul how to treat one who is committing sin, who is in their midst. And what I want to emphasize here is that in both cases, it's happening in a local expression of the bride of Christ. And it actually is showing who's in and who's out. Who's a part and who's not? Now, from our constitution and bylaws, I want to end with this description of church discipline. Church discipline is regarded as a serious and clear directive in scripture. Church discipline is intended to restore an erring member, to purify the church, to warn other members about the dangers of sinful behavior or teaching, and to demonstrate the reality of righteous living to the unsaved world. Discipline is exercised with compassion for the erring member and a sincere desire to seek that person's repentance, reconciliation, and if necessary, restoration to the fellowship of the local church. In closing, the church is the body of Christ, the dwelling place of his spirit, and the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. The church is God's instrument for bringing both the gospel to the nations and a great host of redeemed humanity to himself. Next session, we'll seek to identify the local church's government, looking at the two offices, elder and deacon, and how that functions within a local church. Let's pray. Father, we are so very thankful for this little bit of time in adult Sunday school to look and to gaze upon what you have created, what you have ordained. And Father, I pray that you would use your word to convict us. To convict us if we have not thought seriously about the local church. Maybe we have been Uh, rebuked or admonished by just truth revealed and what we're to be about. Father, we ask for forgiveness in those areas and thank you for, for the hope of the assurance of pardon that is found in Christ. And then we would strive, Father, with your help, the help of the Spirit, to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you as we seek to live out the Christian life in this local expression of the bride. And we pray all this in Christ's name, amen.